Well, before we open God's Word this morning, I want to share a couple of uh, very important prayer requests with you and, and have you commit to uh, praying for these dear people. First of all, Sue Holtrip, and Kyle mentioned during the call to worship, it was on Thursday morning, early in the morning, Sue went in for some tests uh, to take a look at her heart, and the, the doctors weren't real comfortable with how her heart was pumping at that point, and so they admitted her to the hospital. I had a chance to visit with them uh, later in the day. And she was in good spirits, and Daryl's in good spirits, and Ryan as well. But they want to continue to observe her, uh, to assess uh, exactly what's taking place, and then and then make a uh, recommendation at that point. They're asking for no visitors, at least today. And so it asks that you would not only pray for the whole trips, but also request their uh, honor their request for privacy at this time. The second prayer request is one that might be new for many of you. Um, I just received a text uh, yesterday while we were in Seattle at the Ligonier Conference that uh, Rick King, many of you remember Rick, had a heart attack over the weekend. Uh, 98% blockage. And when I heard that, I thought, oh, and I had just sent a letter to Rick just a few days ago, as a matter of fact. And But as I talked to Tanya this morning, the, the report looks good. It appears that he'll be heading home today. Um, and so we're thankful to God for that, that they caught this uh, just in time. I heard from Karen this morning as well. She wanted me to pass along her deep appreciation for the love and support that they have received from Christ Fellowship. And mo- more than that, for your prayer support. And so I want to take a moment and pray for these uh, two families. Will you pray with me? Father, we, we lift up Sue to you, and she's been through uh, so much over the last few months, not just uh, her physical health, but uh, the loss of her father, and it's just been um, just really difficult for this dear family. So we commit her to you. We commit uh, Ryan and Daryl to you as well, and ask that you'd strengthen them during this difficult time. We pray for the, the doctors as they uh, continue to uh, assess what needs to happen next, if anything, uh, that you would watch over them. And and help them to be uh, clear and sharp in their diagnosis and that you'd work all things together for Sue. Uh, help her to, to rest during these days and that you'd raise her up according to your good and kind providence. And then we're uh, so thankful that you have protected uh, Rick as he's had this heart attack over the weekend. Thank you for uh, the miracle of modern medicine. Thank you for using uh, uh, these healthcare professionals to make a difference in Rick's life. We give you the ultimate glory for using them, God. Thank you for the good report that he'll be going uh, home later today and ask that as he uh, recovers and recuperates that you'd raise him up according to your kind providence. Thank you for the kings and we have so many fond memories of them and we want to commit them to you and trust them into your care. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please grab your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul admonished the first century Christ followers in the city of Ephesus. And here's what he said in verses 22 to 24. He said to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. These three highlighted areas you see on the screen uh, 
our, our habits, if you will, that should be literally ingrained onto the hearts and the minds of the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who dwell in the city of God. These are the fundamental realities that should govern our conduct as we live in the city of God. These habits, like I say, should be should mark us. They should be ingrained in us. These are the, the fundamental realities that should guide all of our behavior. And so when we, when we learn about what it means to put off our old selves, here's what we do. We put off not 50%. Not 90%, not 99%, but we put off all that we used to be as pagans. By the way, some people don't like that word pagan, but that is the way that Scripture refers to the the unbelieving person who lives in the, the city of man. We are to put off all that we were when we lived as pagans in the city of man. Colossians 3.8 says it like this. We put away sinful anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from our mouths. James 1.21 says we put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. 1 Peter 2 verse 1 says we put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. All of the sin, 100% of the sin that dominated our lives as pagans in the city of man, we are to put those things away. We also learn to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. We, we fixate our attention on the truth as we are being renewed in the spirit of our minds. We allow the word of God to, to do this magisterial, mighty work in our lives. Such a commitment leads to a supernatural renewing of our minds. And then we learn from Ephesians 4 that when we... We put on the new self. What we do is essentially this. We accept, we embrace the reality of what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. We appropriate the truth of the gospel. Now, some of you may wonder, what does it mean to appropriate the truth of the gospel? I want you to imagine with me my my friend Paul. Paul says to me, I did not have his permission to use them in this illustration, so I'm on shaky ground, I think. But let's say that Paul sends me an email and he says, Pastor Dave, I want to let you know that I have deposited $10,000 in your checking account. That would be a pretty interesting gift, right? And all you need to do is go down to the bank and make the withdrawal. And so there's $10,000 in my checking account. But if I don't appropriate those funds, they belong to me, but they're of no use to me. You see, to appropriate something means to, to, to bank on it, to embrace it, to use it. And so when we talk in this final phase of Ephesians chapter 4 to put on the new self, we appropriate All that God is for us in Jesus Christ. That is to say, we put into practice what God says is true about us. And when we commit to 
living, truly living as blood-bought citizens in the kingdom or the city of God, here's what happens. We will stop making excuses about how we have been raised. Have you ever done that? Well, the way, the reason I do this is because that's how I've been raised. But when we begin to put off and have renewed minds and put on all that God calls us to be to literally appropriate all that God is for us in Christ, we stop making excuses about the past. We stop blaming other people. We stop blaming a a habit. We stop blaming an addiction. We begin to realize this amazing truth, that it is not I who lives, but Christ who lives within me. We begin to realize the importance of what it means to walk by Someone help me. We walk by faith, not by sight in the city of God. As citizens, I might put it this way for the young people, as citizens in the, as people in the, the city of God, as citizens in the city of God, we're all in. We're, we're in it to win it. There is no compromise. We are going to do this thing. And now that we've made this decision, the scriptures... The Word of God, these 66 books that are compiled into this one book, they begin to dominate our minds, our affections, and our wills. And then we begin to echo the words of Scripture that say, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give Christ's fellowship all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul continues, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what it means to live in the city of God. Now Paul continues in the final section of Ephesians chapter 4 to unpack what it looks like to practically live in the city of God. What does it mean to put off our old selves? What does it mean to aim for mind renewal? What does it mean to put on the new self? We've learned, first of all, that if we are to do these things... If we are to truly live in the city of God, we must first make this commitment to the truth. We refuse to say with the postmodernists, there is no truth. 
We, resu- resu- we refuse to say with, with the modern philosopher or the postmodern philosopher, there is no such thing as a, a transcendent, overarching narrative. We refuse to say there is no such thing as truth. Rather, we as residents in the city of God say we commit ourselves to, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, true truth. True truth. Second, we've also learned that we must have controlled emotions. Verses 26 and 27 of Ephesians chapter 4. Today, we take one step further in this rather lengthy excursion of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. Verses 25 to 32, six months ago, I had intended to preach in one sermon. That turned into six sermons. And after we get done today, you will certainly be glad that it turned into six sermons because I can scarcely fit in one verse over the course of the time that we have been allotted. The title of the message this morning, once again, is Our New Life in the City of God. Conscientious Hands. If you have your Bibles open, look at Ephesians chapter 4, and I want to have you stand to your feet as we read one verse together. Verse 28. And may I remind you that this is God's inerrant, infallible, authoritative word. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. I want to make a a personal comment before we dive into this text. And as we worship together and as I thought back and forth, should I say it, should I not say it, should I say it, should I not say it, I'm going to say it. This is going to be, this will be one of those sermons that you will not want to fall asleep in. I should probably say that every week, right? Just for my sanity. But this is one in particular that if you fall asleep, here's what's going to happen. Later today at lunchtime when you discuss the sermon and those who were awake tell you what it was about, you will feel horrible. You will feel horrible. So, perk up, brighten up, drink a couple sips of coffee, and let's do this together. One of the repeated objections that I hear from professing followers of Christ in the postmodern age is that the Word of God is not relevant. Now, I hope you agree with me on this. When, when a Christian tells me that the Word of God is not relevant, I tend to not be a very moody person. When someone tells me, when a Christian tells me the Word of God is not relevant, all of a sudden all bets are off, and I become incredibly moody and grumpy. Why would a follower of Jesus Christ, why would a pastor, why would a shepherd of the flock say the Word of God's just not very relevant? Those who fail to see the relevancy of Scripture will simply do anything to to marginalize 
or sideline the truth of God's Word. They will, they will compromise God's Word. They will shorten the sermon in the sake of, for the sake of relevance. They will add lots of jokes for the sake of relevance. They will trivialize the Word of God. They will, they will have drama instead of preaching. Because why? Preaching is, that's for the olden days. That's for Martin Lloyd-Jones in London. That's for Charles Haddon Spurgeon in London. That's for Martin Luther in, in Wittenberg. That's for John Owen in the streets of London. That's not for us. We, we, are, we are people who are refined. We want drama. We want humor. We want laughter. Why? Because some believe the Word of God is not relevant. This morning... We will see that nothing could be further from the truth. We will see that God's word has something to say about our approach to the topic of work. Work. And we will see that our work is is directly related to the attitude that we have as we live in the city of God. In our passage, we see that there are really only two options. These are the the only options for you this morning. The first option is that you may be a crook. I hope that's no one here this morning. That you are a crook. I have a relative, a cousin, first cousin, who I learned two weeks ago was charged for being a crook. And my cousin, whom I love, is now serving a five-year sentence in jail because he's the person on the left. So I want to ask and have you wrestle with this. Are you a crook? The second option, if you're not a crook, you are numbered among the conscientious. You are numbered among the conscientious. And so I want to unpack these two options for you and trust that that God would communicate to you, not through any kind of an audible voice, but he would communicate to you deep down in your soul through the infallible authoritative word of God. Look with me first at the crook, the crook. Once again, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. Now, I want to alert you to something that I found fascinating. The, the word translated thief and steal. Do you see that? And not S-T-E-E-L-E. Are you with? Okay. S-T-E-A-L, right? That's totally different than S-T-E-E-L-E, right? The word translated thief and steal are the identical Greek word. And I want to walk you through this by helping you to see the anatomy of a crook. Did you think you'd come to church this morning and learn about the anatomy of a crook? And I hope you enjoy it. And I hope it is not only educational, but it would be deeply convicting if you struggle in this area. The Greek word translated thief and steal comes, the English word comes from the Greek word klepto. Now, I remember... I remember as a grade school student, every once in a while, and I remember this vividly, and I don't know where these kids came up with this, they would, they would refer to people, you're a klepto. You're, yeah, you remember this guy? You're a klepto. And I thought, you're a klepto? Like, what in the world is a klepto? Klepto 
is the Greek word translated thief or steal. Now, you might not have been on the same playground that I was on, and you might not have heard someone refer to someone as a klepto, but I bet you have heard this. Have you ever heard of a kleptomaniac? A kleptomaniac is a person who steals. Now, it's not just the person that has come into hard times and needs to walk into the grocery store and take a couple of cans of tuna fish so that they can survive that day. That's not the, that's just a, that's a regular run-of-the-mill thief. But the kleptomaniac really doesn't have any need for the, the possessions he or she's looking for. A kleptomaniac, if I can put it so crassly, steals to steal. Like they, they, they find delight in stealing. That's the kleptomaniac. They steal compulsively. The word translated steal in this passage means to steal objects or people. It means to steal something, as you see on the screen, without the consent of the owner. It means to cheat. It means to bewitch. It means to conceal something. And here's the word that I... It's not the word in our text, but there's a, a synonym for this word and. I've been fascinated with this word for years. It might be a new one for you. It's the word subterfuge. I thought that'd be a great name for a band. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Subterfuge, right? What's subterfuge? If you are engaged in subterfuge, you are a person who uses deceit in order to obtain a particular goal. So what does it mean? What is this anatomy of the crook? There are are several things that could characterize the, the life of a crook. The first is the most basic. The crook steals possessions. That's what we're probably all most familiar with. This is the bank robber. They steal someone's money or someone's possession. This is the... The person that walks into Target or Fred Meyer and looks left and looks right and then takes a bunch of socks and sticks them, stuck them down their shirt, right? And they walk out like an overweight person. They're not overweight. They just stuck socks down their shirt. They steal possessions. This is when someone during a natural disaster, and you'll see this from time to time, there's a, there's a hurricane in Orlando or in Haiti or some other place, and what happens is people rob and loot stores. This describes the person to bring it closer to home. This is the child who looks left and looks right when mom and dad are looking the other way, and they take $20 off the dresser. That describes the, the klepto, the thief. There's another thing that a person may steal. This person may steal property. And I battle back and forth as to whether or not I should emphasize this because I have some very strong feelings about this. But it's something like this. You own a piece of property and the government swoops in and says, Oh, by the way, we take your property and we're going to use something called eminent domain. If that's ever happened to you, my suspicion would be you would see that as klepto. No, no, that's not some kind of legal loophole. You stole my property. There are people who steal other people. You remember the, it's one of the black eyes in American history, probably the biggest black eye in American history when we enslaved Africans. A horrible, horrible sin. May I remind you that slavery has not ended. 
slavery in Thailand, as I mentioned last week, and not just run-of-the-mill slavery, sex slavery, child slavery. And we know that's even happening right under our noses as people cross the border back and forth. There is a stealing known as pilfering. That might be a new term for the younger people, but a, a person who's a pilferer is a person who has great intentions and they go into their place of employment and they take things from the office home for their own use without paying for them. I remember when I was just out of college and managed a, a pizza restaurant. My dad helped me to understand some, some of the ethics of pilfering. He says, when you interview someone, you would ask that person, would you ever just take a piece of pepperoni and just eat it? He said, that would really gauge where a person's at. Because most people would likely say, oh, yeah, grab a piece of pepperoni. You know, work out in the raspberry fields. Just grab some raspberries from time to time. There's a word for that. It's klepto. It's stealing. It's stealing. I talked to someone who worked in the raspberry fields not too long ago. And one of, the, one of the bosses at the raspberry field said this. He told these teenagers, he said, you're all underpaid. You're, you're, you're grossly underpaid. And so I just want to invite you to take as many raspberries to consume as you would like. Why? Because you're grossly underpaid. There's a word for that. That's klepto. That's stealing. There's another form of stealing that is very subtle. It's the form of klepto that we refer to as plagiarism. Plagiarism. If you find a sermon that you like by John MacArthur, and you decide, man, that's a good one. And you step up to this pulpit and wax eloquent for 50 minutes and say, let's close in prayer, but you know deep down in your heart, you didn't do any work, you just read from John MacArthur. That's called plagiarism. That's klepto. Or if you decide you're going to write a paper, and you're going to include dozens and dozens of quotes from first-hand sources, and you fail to cite those sources, and you make it sound like you're Mr. Smarty Pants, that's called plagiarism. That will get you ejected from a school and in big trouble. Now here's one that was actually new to me. Maybe new to you. It's, it's a form of klepto called farming. Farming. Dave, Herringa, not your farming. Not that kind of farming. That's legitimate farming. That's F-A-R-M-I-N-G. That's thumbs up for farming, right? This is P-H-A-R-M-I-N-G. Farming. Let me define it. This is the fraudulent practice of directing internet traffic users to a bogus website that mimics the appearance of a legitimate one in order to obtain personal information such as passwords, account numbers. You get the idea. Farming. Now, there are other forms of stealing that include stock fraud, overcharging for a product, dishonest advertising, Rigging the weights so that a customer thinks he or she is getting a pound of bananas, but you're really getting half a pound of bananas. These are all forms of, of klepto. Let me have you look with me just for a moment at the New Testament usage. And we'll look at these quickly. First in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, you don't need to turn there, but the scripture says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and klepto. You're getting it. Then we have another one in Mark chapter 10, verse 19. Jesus says, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not 
klepto, do not steal. Romans chapter 13, verse 9, Paul says, The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commands are summed up in the word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I remember the very first time I experienced klepto firsthand. My mom and dad let me, I was probably about 10 years old, maybe 11, and I think it was the best day of my life up to that point. My mom and dad let me go to 7-Eleven on my bike with my buddies. It was like, freedom, right? So we went to 7-Eleven, and what do you do at 7-Eleven? You always get a Slurpee and candy, right? It's like, it's the ultimate. And if you have extra money, you get the nachos with the extra cheese, right, Patty? My favorite. Patty knows this about me. So... My buddies and I, and my three buddies, we went to 7-Eleven, and we all kind of dispersed, and we went our separate ways, and I got my, my raspberry Slurpee and my Reese's peanut butter cups, right? What else is there? And we left the store, and we got on our bikes, and we're riding and eating our food and our candy, and about halfway home, one of my friends says to me, Hey, Steele, what'd you get? And I said, like, I slurping in my Reese's peanut butter cup. What'd you get? He's like, well, and he showed me. He's like, but, and then he had in his shirt, he lifted up his shirt and he showed all this candy. And I went, I'm going, well, what's going on here? He says, well, I took it. He goes, you didn't steal anything? I said, no, I didn't steal anything. I wish I would have known the word klepto. You're a klepto, kleptomaniac, thief, right? But as it turned out, all my other friends had stolen stuff. I never told my parents because I didn't think I'd be able to go back to 7-Eleven again. But I learned something about my friends that day. They were all crooks. You say, come on, Pastor Dave, it was just candy. It doesn't matter if it's a piece of pepperoni or a shirt full of candy or grand larceny. It's all klepto. Stealing, you should know that it was sometimes actually overlooked in the Greek world. So the, the individuals Paul is writing to here in the first century, he understood that it was not all that uncommon for people to steal in the Greek world and for people just to receive a pass. But it is a serious sin to the Hebrew mindset. It is a serious sin in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 5.19 And I'm going to quote from the King James, if that's okay with you. Thou shall not steal. Stealing is first and foremost a sin against a holy God. It is a sin that results in consequence. So in the New Testament period, the commandment against stealing is repeated as it was in the old, but it has an additional weightiness to it. So think with me. Think with me. Old Testament, thou shalt not steal. Now we have New Testament, thou shalt not steal. Why is it weightier in the New Testament? Answer, because as believers in the new covenant age, we have been given a new heart and a new spirit and a new inclination and a new desire to love God, worship God, please God, obey God. And so that's why the commandment is even weightier. As followers of Jesus, we not only have an inclination to obey, we have the ability to obey. This is the anatomy of a thief. 
Now move forward and look with me at the aspirations of this thief or the aspirations of a crook. And I'll do this quickly. And I want you to notice a common theme, and I'll give it to you in advance. All of the aspirations of a crook begin with one letter. I. I. Number one, I want something that doesn't belong to me. Number two, I want something without having to work for it. You know what that describes? Lots of American people. I just want something. I have this entitlement mentality. The government should give it to me. My parents should give it to me. There's a third aspiration of the crook. I would rather be lazy and get something for nothing than work for it. Very close to the second one. Number four. I am content to reap the benefits of someone else's productivity. Now, each of these aspirations, and I hope you agree with me, these are horrible aspirations. These represent the inner longings of the citizen of man. Think with me about the inner longings of such a person. Beyond the reasons we have just described, what would motivate a person to steal? What is the deeper reason behind this grievous sin? Now, I want to do, do a, really an exercise with you. And some of you have seen this before. Because this is something I probably use more than anything else in biblical counseling. Where I will ask someone who's struggling with sin. And you fill in the blank. And between you and God, say, God, th- this is the, the biggest sin I struggle with. Maybe it's... Lying, maybe it's thieving, maybe it, maybe it's a, a sexual sin, maybe it's pornography, maybe it's being dishonest. Whatever it might be, ask yourself. And this is the question I pose to a counselee: Why do you do it? And almost one hundred percent of the people will respond something like this: Because I want to do it. Say we need to go deeper than because I want to do it. That's a legitimate answer, but why do you want to do it? And so I want to show you the tree, what I like to call the tree of sin. We have the tree of sin. And if you would look at all those green leaves, I want you to imagine the the deeds of the flesh that Paul sets forth in Galatians 5. These, to, to put it very basically and crassly, this is all the bad stuff, the sinful stuff, right, that I just mentioned. And so what I want to have you do is say, what is it that is on your tree of sin? Why is it that I commit that sin? Why do I struggle with that sin? And since we don't have time to wrestle back and forth, when I'm in a meeting with someone, I'll I'll sit there for half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour, because I want the person to, I don't want to just say, here's the answer. But I have to give you the answer up front this morning. Why do we struggle with sin? And here is the ultimate answer. I want to put this on the screen for you. The reason that we commit a given sin, in this case, thieving, klepto, is because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. Namely, unbelief in the promises of God. And notice where we've placed the word unbelief. They're in the root system. The root of every sin that you and I commit 
is unbelief in the promises of God. Most specifically for the thief, the thief fails to trust that a sovereign God will meet his or her needs. And so since they fail to trust that God will meet their needs, they say, I need to rob the bank. I need $50,000. God will never give me that kind of a gift. Is this not the experience that we have every time we commit a sin? We fail to trust that God will come through in the clutch for us. And so what do we do? We fill our minds, we fill our hearts, we fill our closets and our garages and our our, our U-Hauls with whatever may be in the world, the flesh and the devil. If you find yourself battling this morning with the aspirations of a crook, the message of the scripture is, is so very clear. And it goes something like this. Let the thief no longer steal. That is, stop making excuses. Stop hiding your sin. Stop blaming other people for your sin. Stop blaming your background for your sin. Stop blaming your pedigree for your sin. Come out of the city of God and walk humbly and by faith in the city of God. Come out of the city of man, rather, and come humbly and walk in the city of God. So when you live as a citizen in the city of God, instead of being a crook, here's your other option. We've already seen it. You decide to pursue a life that is conscientious. And I want to have you look with me at verse 28 and see a a sharp contrast. There is a sharp contrast in verse 28 between these two radically different proposals. It goes like this. Let the thief no longer steal. And here's one you might just put in boxes in your Bible. But rather. That marks this strong contrast. But rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is what we call the conscientious. And so let me just take our remaining minutes to walk through with you the principle of conscientious hands. The first principle, let's look at it on the screen quickly. The first principle of the conscientious hands is this. Citizens of the city of God are called upon to labor. Do you see it in verse 28? But rather, let him labor. Here's what the word labor means in the Greek. It means to work to the point of exhaustion. Do I hear an amen on that? I'm getting scared. I know some of you, you, many of you, love to work. And there is nothing like it when you, when you wake up early in the morning and you, you put in a good day's work. You come home and have dinner with your family. You might even go work some more. It's possible. And then you lay your, your head on the pillow and you're exhausted. But it was a good day because you worked to the point of exhaustion. Paul is stressing the importance here of putting in a good day's work. This applies, of course, to not only workers on the job, this applies to housewives, this applies to students, this applies to all of the people of God wherever you would find yourself working. It's also important that you see that he writes in the imperative mood. In other words, this is a command. 
We've already seen several commands or imperatives in Ephesians 4, beginning of verse 25. This is yet another one. I want you to see how labor is also used in two other contexts to show you a little bit more about the word. Quickly, Luke chapter 5, verse 5. Simon, or Simon Peter, answered to Jesus. He said, Master, we have toiled. The word toiled is the the same word translated as labor in verse 28. We have toiled all night and we have took nothing. Now, think about Peter. Peter was a blue-collar worker. Peter was a guy who had the calluses on his fingers. Peter was the guy that when he came home, he had to use that orange soap stuff with the grit in it. You know, some, some of you use that. Aaron, I bet you use that. It's that really good soap, right? Why does he use it? Because he works hard. Many of you work hard like that. In 1 Timothy 4.10, Paul says, For to this end we toil. That's the same word translated labor. We toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who's the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Notice the second principle. Citizens in the city of God are called upon to do honest work with their hands. You see that in verse 28. Let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. The word translated work here means to exert yourself. To exert yourself to the point of exhaustion. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, Paul uses the word again. He says, whatever you do, work Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. One of my heroes, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, we affectionately refer to him as the doctor because he was a medical doctor before, before he became a pastor. He said this, The moment you begin to regard work as something degrading, I want to fill in the blanks here, the moment you start to regard work as something you're not interested in, The moment you start to regard work as something that is a little bit below you, the moment you regard regard work as something that you don't want in your life, Lloyd-Jones says this, you are on a slippery slope. He says, the moment you fail to see the dignity of work and the essential rightness of work, the moment you begin to think in terms of having rather than truly and honestly earning, you're beginning to open the door that will lead to some form of dishonesty. Here's what Lloyd-Jones is saying. When you begin to cast work aside and say, that's not for me, you are on your way to Robin Hood. You are on the path of becoming a klepto, a thief. Number three, please remember quickly that work has always been a part of God's plan for his people. There are some who will say that work came as a result of the fall. Nothing could be further from the truth. One writer says work is a gift of God, not a punishment for sin. Even before the fall, humanity had duties to perform. Fourth, notice with me that work is an important part of fulfilling our calling before God. For the young people who have graduated, here they are on really at the the beginning of their journey. They're going to, in a few short months, they're going to turn the chapter. It's going to be, call it chapter three. You got the grade school as chapter one. You got 
Junior high and high school is chapter 2. Chapter 3 is enter the work world, go to college, go to the military, wherever God's calling you to go. This is exciting. These are exciting times for young people. This is when you begin to see what is the call that God has on my life. Work is an important part of fulfilling our calling before God. As a result, we are careful. And I want to admonish the young people. Think carefully about this. We are to carefully avoid anything that smacks of laziness. And all the parents are going, oh boy, Pastor Dave, preach it, baby. Right? We live in... Lord, do I say this? We live in a stinking, lazy culture, right? I heard one pastor describe it like this. You're so lazy that it's later in the evening. You're laying there and you get your cell phone and you call Domino's and you say, bring over a pepperoni pizza. 20 minutes later, the Domino's guy shows up at the door and he rings the doorbell and you're like, just leave it on the porch. I'm I'm just too tired to come pick it up. The money's on the patio. I'll get someone else to pick it up for me. I'm just ah, I'm tired. We need to flee from laziness like the plague. So I want to challenge young people this morning. Hope it doesn't sound like I'm thrashing on you. Do this. You can even forget everything we've talked about this morning so far. Just write this down. Flee from laziness like the plague, period. You can quote me. Your parents will thank you 10 years from now. Correction, 10 minutes from now. (laughs) Proverbs 6, 9. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Proverbs 19, 24. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, and he will not even bring it back to his mouth. That's the guy that ordered Domino's. I'm going to get some nachos. Man, they look good. I can't even get it to my mouth. I'm tired. That is a portrait of the sluggard. The sluggard in Proverbs 20 verse 4 does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest. And what will he have? Zilch, nothing, nada, poverty, done. Game over. Proverbs 26 14, as a door turns on a hinge, so does the sluggard on his bed. Number five, we should... Remember that work should always reflect a Christian worldview and not be based purely on financial considerations. So here's some questions that uh, one writer sets before us. His name is Richard Phillips. Does my work glorify God? Does my work benefit other people? Is God calling me to work in this particular line of work? Does my work permit me to lead a godly and a balanced life? And I didn't plan this with BJ's excellent presentation with young people. Here's the thing about work for young people. Don't ask, how much will I get paid? That's not the most important question. The most important question is, what is God calling me to do? And some of you will make minimum wage for a while. Some of you will make six figures. I'll give you my email later. We can talk, right? But how much do I make? That's not the most important question. The most important question is, how can I glorify God with the gifts and the talents he's given me? There's a story of a pianist who performed a debut concert at Carnegie Hall. And at the end of this performance, the crowd cheered this young man with reckless abandon. One of the onlookers on the stage said to this young, amazing pianist, go back out on the stage and, and do an encore. 
But the young pianist refused. He answered, do you see that guy way in the back corner? Do you notice he's the only guy not standing? Like I said, yeah, actually, I do see him. Who is that? He said, that's my teacher. And I will not perform an encore until my teacher stands. What's the point of the story? Is we work for an audience of one. We don't work for our parents. We don't work for our friends. We don't work for our spouse. We don't work for our company. First of all, we work for a holy God and we strive to please him. And so God has called his people to labor. He's called them to do honest work with, with hands. But Paul concludes by revealing the purpose for this labor. We'll end on a high note this morning. The purpose is found in verse 28. We are to do honest labor with our own hands so that, here's one of those purpose clauses, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The purpose of work is so that we might be a blessing. So that we might be a blessing. Romans twelve thirteen says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We strive to use our hands, to use our minds, to use our talents to be blessings. As we close this morning, I want you to look at this image that you've already seen. The contrast between the crook and the conscientious. And I want you to see, first of all, that the crook is closed-fisted. The crook is closed-fisted, but the conscientious person is open-handed. The crook, on the other hand, is selfish. The conscientious person is selfless. The crook is focused on now, on the here and now. The conscientious person is focused on eternity. And so living in the city of God requires conscientious hands. And the only way to live with this kind of selflessness is to turn your attention to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself did the most mighty work of all on the cross so that he might share eternal life with anyone who casts all their hope and future exclusively on him. A quick point of clarification. Please understand that because of common grace... Those who would be labeled among the crooks, those who are unconverted, those people can actually live as people who are very conscientious. But remember this, unconverted people may be hardworking people who are even open-handed and selfless. But the difference lies in the motivation of the unconverted person. Why? Why is he hardworking? Why is she open-handed? Why does he or she share? It is certainly not for the glory of God. For the scripture says, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and all our iniquities like the wind take us away. So the question for each of us this morning is, do I have conscientious hands? But the greater question is, do I have a converted heart? As they said in the scriptures, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. May we learn to live as faithful citizens in the city of God. May we live quorum Deo. May we live before the face of God as we strive to be a people who are a people of conscientious hands.
Let's pray together. Father, I never cease to be amazed at the, the depth and the riches of your word. Here in one short verse, we have a, a mighty challenge. The challenge before us is to live as a crook or to live as one who is conscientious. And the one who is conscientious is the one who is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is open-handed, who is unselfish, who has an eternal perspective. God, guard us from something that we are all so susceptible to. Every single one of us are susceptible to laziness. And so, God, would we, would we flee? Would we flee from laziness? And as we flee from laziness, may we flee to the Lord Jesus Christ and bank all our hope and future exclusively in our Savior who died on the cross so that we might live as free men and women and boys and girls, so that we may have our sins forgiven, past, present, and future. We acknowledge that it is only you, Lord Jesus, who can free up our hands so that we are conscientious, so that we glorify you, so that our attitudes are right, so that our mindset is right, so that the way we use our hands and our feet and our mouths and the gifts that you have given us all glorify you. Finally, I want to thank you for uh, the presentation that the youth staff gave this morning. Thank you for their hard work, for their, their labor with their hands, with these fine young people. And then I want to pray for each of these graduates. I want to continue to commit them to you that today would be a day where they would draw the line in the sand and say, God, I don't know what you have for me. But my commitment today is to be numbered among the conscientious. I want to strive to work with my hands all to the glory of God and flee from laziness and flee to the cross. For I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer me that lives, but Christ that lives within me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who died and gave himself for me. In Jesus' name, amen.